Okay, um, we have a very intensive schedule today, so I want to make a start on time, and I'm very pleased to introduce the Dean of College of Arts and Sciences, uh, Virginia Shapiro, who is a fellow political scientist, to make some introductory remarks. Right. My role is to be the talking head here for two minutes to warm you up as you get going. I want to welcome you here. I'm very pleased that we're now on the back and forth across the puddle to have uh, the first meetings of your groups over at Warwick and now to be here. Um, I think this is already one of the most successful examples of the linkage between uh, Warwick and BU and I think this is going to be really lead to some more great things in the future. So um, I welcome you here. I am uh, especially delighted as Wynne says as a political scientist to be in a setting where people actually think understanding economic crises requires people who know something about government and politics. I spend a lot of time around people where when we talk about things like that I have to convince them that we need people who know something about government and politics as well. So uh, I wish you well for the day. I know that you have a lot of work to do and I will look forward to seeing a lot of you later in the day. Um, a good day to you. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to proceed then to the uh, first papers. Uh, Richard Higgert is our first speaker who's given us a very interesting overview of the state of uh, global economic governance. So I'm going to hand over to Richard to start. We'll take each of the papers in succession, then have discussion afterwards. Well, I, I don't think I've been in a room with so many of my colleagues uh, for quite a while, so uh, it's quite nice to do this. Um, I'm really happy to do this because in my day job I don't get a chance to think about things academically very often at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure this is a research paper. I don't think there's any research in it. There's certainly no primary research in it. Rather, it's an attempt for me to take stock of my thinking on the current state of multilateral uh, institutional organization in the context of the economic crisis of the last decade. The GFC I'm going to use for short, the global financial crisis. Uh, and I suppose that the recent events, especially the GFC, have caused some observers to question whether international economic institutions are any longer suitable for the challenges that they face in the contemporary age if they're unable to prevent increasingly recurring uh, crises or to facilitate a more general process of, of long-term economic collective action, problem solving. Uh, this kind of analysis, I think, is important but misses a point. And that point is that for all their apparent failings, the need for such institutions is unlikely to disappear um, in an era characterized by high levels of economic interdependence. The global economic, global economic governance may still be an imperfect and in contrast to the global economy underdeveloped art form, but if global governance is to evolve, multilateral economic institutions of one kind or another, and I think the big distinction that we have is between what it developed in the 20th century, second half of the 20th century, and what's, what's developing now. So what I do in this paper is develop this argument by providing initially some clarification of terms and concepts. Secondly, I sketch a general historical contour and dynamics of the multilateral institutions uh, as quintessential agents of post-World War II uh, international economic governance. Um, and I look at the way that the mission statements of, of the Bretton Woods organizations and the WTO um, what George Soros calls the ifties 
and everybody else calls the International Economic Institutions. Uh, how the mission statements have changed over the last uh, uh, couple of decades. Uh, fourth, I describe some of the newer multilateral activity and suggest why issues of authority and accountability are become increasingly important but contested. And I think I'll probably focus, because we've got 20 minutes, is that right? 50. I'll focus on that rather than on the historical, uh, historical stuff. And finally, the paper assesses the prospects for new or different forms of global economic governance and the ability of the multilateral institutions to participate in the management of the complexity and uncertainty that seems endemic to the contemporary world order. Um, there is another version of this paper uh, which has a second section to it that I'm going to deliver in Melbourne in three days' time. And this asks, picks up on something that Gina said, why political science um, as a source of scholarly inquiry and action uh, on the international economic organizations has vacated the field to the economists uh, and why this has been bad for both theory uh, and for policy. I'm not going to enter that. Uh, here today, but that is a, an issue for us. What I do in the first section is I, I'd say something about what the literature tells us about economic governance and identify, for some people it's a, the concept's an oxymoron, um, a contradiction in terms or at best a fantasy of scholars uh, and if you think about the difference in the way that realists, liberal interdependence theorists and cosmopolitan theorists look at it you can see that there's no general agreed position on what constitutes governance beyond the level of the state. Uh, the other point I make in this first section of the paper is that the thing that's important is that they all consider it to be a salient agenda item to think about it and that it's no longer the plaything of scholars, especially since the GFC. Um, and in fact, someone like Martin Wolf, for example, who's had a very interesting career change over the last two or three years if you've followed Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Even Martin Wolf before the GFC uh, talked about the growing impact of the dilemma of global governance. And so I think it's, a, it's something that we can actually consider in a way that we probably didn't in the past. Uh, in a more concrete sense, where this shows up in, in the policy agenda is in the doubts about our abilities to provide an appropriate multilateral regulatory framework for the management of the economy at the global level and particularly in the wake of uh, the crisis of the last couple of decades. It's not clear, however, whether the crisis at the end of the first decade of the 20th century will lead to major changes in the existing system of regulation. Uh, does it represent a crisis of multilateralism or through something like the evolution of the G20? Uh, does it rec represent a new stage of multilateralism? Uh, and I'll say something about that later on because I'm, uh, I'm a, I suppose I'm a G20 skeptic. Um, I mean, a one and a half cheers, I suppose. If it didn't exist, we'd probably be trying to invent it. Uh, but what it's actually doing for us, uh, in a long and substantive sense, I'm not sure we, we actually uh, know yet. Um, in reality, I think little, substance, little of substance has changed between the Asian financial crisis, for example, uh, and the crisis of 2008. And many of the restrictions that had formerly been put in place to control the activities of banks at a national level were actually repealed as policymakers in the Anglo-American economies 
became locked in a competition to provide light-touch, business-friendly regulation. Uh, let us not forget that Glass-Steagall was not repealed until 1999. Okay, we must ask, I think, what we might understand by the idea of global governance, uh, if we're going to use a concept like that. Most global governance, for much of the second half of the 20th century, especially in the economic domain, I would argue, <coughs> focuses on what I call the effective and efficient collective action problem solving undertaken by or within international organization. Proponents, principally trained as economists, I would say, claim that effective and efficient governance was not a normative, but an empirical matter. And international organization, with states as the agents, were the principal vehicles within which it occurred when necessary. Now, this view, I would argue, is increasingly deficient uh, in the contemporary era on two grounds. Firstly, it presents an excessively one-dimensional view of global economic institutions. Most scholars and practitioners today increasingly recognize that we privilege effective and efficient decision-making, uh, uh, that when we privilege it, it has important normative implications and consequences, and that the international economic institutions much, must address questions of accountability and democratic legitimacy, legitimacy as much as effectiveness and efficiency, uh, and certainly more than they've done in the past. And this disconnect has led to the debate over the legitimacy deficits in the major international organization. Secondly, this view of global governance overstates the role of international organizations in global public policy making at the expense of both emerging or what we might call re-emerging state actors, uh, non-state actors operating in other ways and in other regulatory contexts that in their modus operandi depart from traditional understandings of international economic diplomacy. And I think there is a change in contemporary international economic diplomacy. This, I would argue, is an empirically outdated view of how the world works, or more importantly, does not work when it comes to collective action problem solving in the economic domain. Uh, and the G20, in many ways, is effectively a reassertion of the role of the state, um, rather than uh, a new form of strong multilateralism. Notwithstanding the emergence of the other actors, what I call brickism, or the obsession with, with brickism that, 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 that exists. In many respects, the balance of power today in the major global institutions still largely represents the modified balance of power from the 1944-45 period. Uh, the permanent members of the Security Council are still the five victors of the Second World War, even if the China that holds the seat now is not the one uh, at the time. Uh, similarly, Russia has slipped into the seat that was vacated by the Soviet Union. The IMF and the bank, despite some changes in their mission and some realignment of the power secured by the US in return for underwriting the post-World War II liberal economic bargain, uh, remains largely the same. Uh, of course, global economic decision-making has undergone changes, uh, but this is happening at both a specific and an institutional level. Now, what I'm not going to talk about <clears throat> is that section where I look at the changes that have come about in the bank, the fund, uh, and the WTO uh, in the period of the Second World War. There's a three or four page discussion of it. Rather, when can you tell me when I've got a couple of minutes left? Yeah. Rather, I want to look at system level structural change in the contemporary era. And I think suffice it to say that if we look at the history of the institutions over the Second World War period, uh, discontent over the roles in both an analytical 
uh, and a policy sense has been a continuing theme. Uh, we're damned with them, but we're damned without them. The East Asian crisis of the late uh, 90s brought dissatisfaction with the so-called international financial architecture. It brought it something to put it to something overhead. Observers felt that if the IFIs were not in some way responsible for the crisis by encouraging premature economic liberalisation, they were certainly culpable in failing to manage the impact of and recovery from the crisis. Uh, and one of the big lessons that East Asian economic and political elites drew from the crisis was that the region rapidly needed to develop its own economic institutions if it wanted to be able to respond effectively in the future, or rhetorically at least. One of the other great paradoxes, uh, one of the consequences, uh, I should say, is that there have been accelerated efforts to develop new regionally-based economic mechanisms. One of the great paradoxes of globalization has been a noteworthy proliferation of institutions to either encourage regional integration or to generate regional responses to specific problems of a global nature. Uh, and indeed, the growth of regional multilateral economic institutions must be seen as the other side of the coin of the limit of global uh, multilateralism. Continuing doubts about our ability to provide an appropriate multilateral regulatory framework for the management of the economy at the global level exacerbated in the wake of what some people call the Great Recession of 2007-2009. At the time, the GFC, uh, the International Economic and Trade Institutions, especially the, the Fund and the WTO, were languishing. The IMF was in search of a new role I mean, I was at the, uh, the ministerials in Singapore in 2006, uh, and the question was, could the IMF survive? Uh, in some ways, the crisis has been the best thing that happened to the IMF in the last couple of decades. Uh, the WTO, as we know, is incapable of finishing the current multilateral trade negotiation round. And at the systemic level, even if the West in general, and I use West in our old, as one of our old categories, and the US in particular, remain the dominant loci of power in the global order, they still needed to find ways of accommodating to the interests and values of others. A relative loss of moral authority and material power now constrains uh, the former major powers' ability to set and implement global economic policy uh, for the rest of the world. Neither the West collectively nor the US individually can exclusively hold the moral high ground occupied, for example, during the first Gulf War, on the one hand, or during the Asian financial crisis uh, on the other. Practices in the security domain, uh, and perhaps even more so practices in the recent global financial context, have eroded key elements of uh, the West's moral authority. And the development of the G20 can be read as much as an attempt to address this problem, as much as a response to the GFC to court. Although an idea developed from an earlier Canadian initiative, Paul Martin, as you know, had this thing about uh, creating a G20. It didn't gain momentum until the crises of 2007-9. In institutional form, the G20 certainly addresses some of the problems inherent in the other international economic bodies. For example, it's not as exclusive as the G7, G8. It has a balanced develop and developing countries membership, including key actors like Brazil, China, and India. It accounts for 90% of total global market capitalization, 80% of global trade, two-thirds of the world's population. Hence, the prominence achieved by the G20 in the wake of recent crisis should be seen as part of a genuine push to develop a more representative multilateralism. Uh, it is the obvious institutional meeting point between the extremes of the G8 on the one hand and the UN on the other, 
for a form of global governance capable of being seen as a legitimate, judged by inclusiveness and representation, while at the same time offering the best chances of effective and efficient decision-making. And yet it remains clear uh, how effective, it, it remains far from clear, sorry, how effective such a group might be in the long run. The frenzied short-run analysis that emerges around each summit, and as we move to the Seoul summit, it's happening all over again, uh, offers little, I would argue, for our longer-term substantive thinking of global governance issues as scholars. Notwithstanding all the hype, there clearly remains a reluctance on the part of the major powers, especially the US and in Europe, to develop the G20 institutionally or share power in any meaningful way with the new actors from the South. So the key question is whether the G20 can retain the positive attributes it developed effectively as what we might call a crisis buster at the height of the GFC to become the hub uh, of, of some kind of steering committee for an increasingly networked system of global economic governance. Can the G20 fill a role not currently played uh, by a selective but increasingly unrepresentative group like the G8 on the one hand, uh, or the UN struggling to remain relevant as a negotiating forum uh, on the other? To turn the G20 into a preeminent multilateral forum for global economic decision making would require a process of both demolition and building uh, on the part of the major developed countries that I don't think we're willing to contemplate. The G8 would need to be demolished and a permanent secretariat as opposed to management by Troika created with a mandate wider than just the financial and economic crisis. But the commitment to multilateralism, I would argue, and this is where the problem lies, and to reinforce multilateralism as the principal modus operandi uh, of global economic governance at the moment is more rhetorical than real. Look at Europe, for example. Regardless of its stated desires to underwrite and reinforce multilateralism uh, amongst its foreign policy elites, uh, the EU has yet to show that it's willing to assist the institutional enhancement of an initiative like the G20 by pooling its multiple voices to allow greater representation of the emerging powers in what many of them still perceive as essentially Western state-led activities. In the absence of this major kind of change, the G20 is likely to be seen less as an attempt to modify multilateralism to 21st century conditions in the face of economic crisis, rather than as an extended consultation between the old G7 with emerging actors. In some ways, the last gasp of an old-fashioned concert uh, of great powers. Okay. What I do in the fourth section of the paper is I look at some of the alternatives to traditional understandings of multilateral governance. Uh, I look, for example, at the rise of regionalism. Uh, I look at the reassertion of statism in some ways. The G20 is a very statist initiative. Um, I look at the emergence of some of the regulatory networks. Uh, my American colleagues here can tell me one of the things that I understand that's happened. Um, if you think about Anne-Marie Slaughter's 2004 book where she took, I'm told that since she's gone into uh, the administration, she says the world doesn't work like that really. Uh, all this notion about the rise of these new regulatory networks, it's not like that at all. Uh, now, it'd be interesting to hear from the horse's mouth, if I can use the expression, uh, what she really thinks there. 
Uh, the other thing I do in this section of the course, uh, this section of the course, um, <laughs> Sean's going to laugh at that. He's going to say he never teaches anyway. What would he say? That? Um, Only for extra money. Yeah. The uh, the thing I do in, is I look at some of the theoretical endeavours to enhance or to mitigate the legitimacy deficit with international institutions. Uh, and I save my powder, I, I direct my fire at what I call essentially the, the pietistic wish fulfillment of the, the cosmopolitan agenda in uh, global international uh, relations, uh, which is high on desirability and low on feasibility. Um, this goes down very well with David Held, as you might imagine. But um, I think that uh, the idea of upscaling uh, the domestic analogy to global economic institutions. Not because I'm some kind of old status realist, but just because I don't think this, is, this has got wings on it in any way. Uh, one of our colleagues at Warwick has got this project called Building Global Democracy uh, that, you know, we get civil society in the same room and all the problems are solved. Uh, I just don't see that kind of uh, agenda. Uh, so what I'm saying is that events of the first decade of the 21st century uh, have done little to advance the cause of essentially a cosmopolitan view of legitimacy. Two last points and then I'll finish with, okay? I describe how 21st century multilateralism is increasingly contingent. What can be done multilaterally is becoming increasingly restrictive, and by multilaterally I mean globally multilaterally, and other other activities are taking place. In some ways, what effectively are suboptimal activities uh, at the regional level, uh, but there's a recognition of the reality of this. So there's been some very interesting literature over the last couple of years uh, from colleagues and friends of mine in, in Geneva uh, on trying to quote-unquote multilateralize regionalism uh, to try and keep the, the basic principles of multilateralism even if in a, a regional uh, context. There are other activities that, if, if you like, are new ways of trying to conduct multilateral economic diplomacy. Uh, minilateralism is something that has become increasingly popular. Uh, the idea of creating critical masses uh, in policy uh, areas. But of course some groups have more influence uh, than others. Um, right, just let me, let me finish. Basic point, I think, one of the consequences of the most recent crisis is its challenge, the efficacy and legitimacy of multilateralism as both a set of principles and institutional practices as they existed and emerged uh, in the second part of the 20th century. I think it's also raised more general meta-theoretical questions too uh, about the role of the market. And a consequence of the most recent crisis has been to damage the authority of a range of actors and agencies uh, that had assumed responsibility for managing economic processes uh, globally. Um, the kind of the, which demonstrates is not really a research paper but more a chat, the kind of conclusion that I finish with is that the, really what we've got to do is try and see how in the struggle between power and a rules-based system uh, we can marry in a meaningful way uh, these two competing uh, activities. Radical transformation of the system is unlikely. A reformist approach to the current system remains difficult, but might not be impossible. 
uh, if attempts to marshal a, a G20 approach uh, have any legs. And if the growth of minilateralism, multilateral regionalism, emerging transnational regulatory networks uh, emerges other uh, sets of, of activities. So it's a fairly pessimistic view uh, of the nature of the multilateral economic uh, project uh, in the early stages of the, of the 20th century.